Let's return to the Gospel of Luke, shall we? Luke chapter 12. We're going to pick up with verse 13. I'll be reading through verse 21. Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I'd like to do something a little out of the ordinary this morning, and that is to kind of break up this message into two very distinct parts, somewhat unrelated, though both coming out of the text. This passage, of course, is primarily about greed and covetousness. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But as I was reading this passage, the first thing that struck me was there in verse 13, where you have this man who asked Jesus to intervene as a judge between he and his brother. And as you read it, particularly coming out of what has come before, you just get the sense that this man is being incredibly rude. Here's Jesus speaking to his disciples, thousands of people listening in, and this man just jumps right in and interrupts the whole thing. After I noticed that, I found that Alexander McLaren noted the same thing, referring to this man as an unmannerly interrupter. Good 19th century way of saying it. I suppose that rudeness made such an impression on me because I had been hearing a great deal, as we probably all have, about another episode of rudeness right around Christmas. It seems that the White House sponsors this thing where you can make a phone call and uh, listen into NORAD as it tracks Santa delivering presents around the world. And as people did that, random callers were connected with President Biden and his wife, who would then wish those people a Merry Christmas. Now, let me preface what I'm about to say with this, nothing that I'm about to say has anything to do with politics. 
Do I have personal political opinions? Of course, we all do. Do those opinions have a place in the pulpit? Sometimes, when they touch on what the scripture says, but only when they intersect with scripture. And what took place in that episode certainly does. One of those who called into the Santa tracking system was connected with the president and his wife, and as the conversation was concluding, he uttered a phrase which has become a well-known euphemism for a profanity directed at the president. Needless to say, great controversy ensued. The liberal side taking great umbrage and the conservative side reminding everyone of similar things that were said about the previous president. I didn't think much of it at first. It struck me as just another example of the world being the world. And then he was identified. And then he agreed to do interviews. And then he professed himself to be a Christian. And then I became interested. And as I read what he was saying in these interviews, I'm thinking to myself, please, just stop talking. He said, for instance, I'm a Christian man. For me, it's God first and foremost. I don't follow any one man blindly. And then he said, I am a free thinker and follower of Jesus Christ. Now, as we begin to look at our passage this morning, and as we consider this idea for a moment of rudeness, I just want to remind us of a couple of things that may be all too easily forgotten in the overheated political environment in which we exist. I'm not at this point terribly concerned with the man who did this since he says he's a Christian. I'll assume he has his own pastor, and I will pray that his pastor will speak to him. But I am concerned about us. I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about myself. And I want to take a few minutes this morning to remind us of things that we shouldn't expect from the world, but which, as those who name the name of Christ, we should be very concerned about. Let me first focus on that last statement the man made. He said, I am a free thinker and follower of Jesus Christ. It is rare that you find someone making such diametrically opposed statements in a single sentence. Brothers and sisters, it is impossible to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and simultaneously a free thinker. That term emerged towards the end of the 17th century to describe those who stood in opposition to the church and to the authority of Scripture. It's a term used by those who consciously refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you are not free in any respect. Your mind, your thinking is as much bound to the lordship of Christ as any other aspect of your life. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses and the destroy, uh, destruction of fortresses. We are destroying what? 
speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to be renewing our minds to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Our thinking, brothers and sisters, is in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, as for the rest of what he says, if one is to name the name of Jesus Christ, if one is to be, as he described himself, a follower of Jesus Christ, if one is going to claim that one is a Christian man or woman, and that it is God first and foremost, then one needs to understand a few things about Christian discipleship in general. Let me lay out a couple of things that come out of this. First, disciples of Jesus Christ are commanded to honor those in authority, whether you agree with them or not. Now, there are a number of different ways in which this is described in Scripture. We are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. We are to pray for kings and those in authority. We are told to honor those in authority. Faithful disciples of Christ do not direct profanity or euphemisms for profanity toward those who are in authority. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's take it out of the realm of authorities for a moment. What else might apply here? Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up in the presence of the gray-headed and honor elders, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. I don't know if they ever considered that before. The honor of elders is connected with the fear of God. Titus 3.1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. But aside from the issue of honoring those in authority, can we talk for a moment about something perhaps more basic? Can we talk about the language that comes out of our mouths? Now you also rid yourselves of all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene speech from your mouth. Your speech must always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But if there is any good word for edification, according to the need of the moment, say that so that it will give grace to those who hear. And there must be no filthiness or foolish talk or vulgar joking, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And do you remember when 
Isaiah had his vision of God on his throne and saw the holiness of God, the angels at the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Do you remember what he said when he looked then at himself and how he described his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people? I am a man of what? Unclean lips. Among a people of unclean lips. And can we speak for a moment about common Christian courtesy? Remind them, Titus, Paul says to Titus, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to slander no one, not be contentious, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all people. Or as the ESV puts it, show perfect courtesy to all people. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And we could go on and on and on, of course. Brothers and sisters, the world wants nothing more than to recruit you into its way of thinking, its way of behaving, its way of speaking. But if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have already been recruited. You have been recruited into the family of God. You are, if you are a believer, a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. And that means that we are obedient to his word, not to what the world would like us to be doing. Not to to think according to the scripture, not according to the views of the world. Something to be thinking about. We're about to move into a year that is going to lead us up to midterm elections. That means we're going to be seeing so much of this stuff. The world wants you to think that there are excuses for disobeying the word of God. That, well, this guy did this, and this guy said that, and there's this political situation and this social situation. And so really, you know, <laughs> how, can you, how, can, how can you speak like that? How can you live like that? You know, there's a, there's a battle going on. You've got to join the fight. Our weapons are not of this world. And our fight is not of this world. Let's come back to the text. In John Grisham's novel, The Testament, Grisham opens with the dying words of a man who will soon be parted from his money. And here are his last thoughts on earth. I am an old man, lonely and unloved, sick and hurting and tired of living. I am ready for the hereafter. It has to be better than this. My assets exceed $11 billion. I own silver in Nevada, copper in Montana, coffee in Kenya, coal in Angola, rubber in Malaysia, and natural gas in Texas. I own crude oil in Indonesia and steel in China. My companies own companies. 
My money is the root of this misery. I had three families, three ex-wives who bore seven children, six of whom are still alive and doing all they can to torment me. I'm estranged from all the wives and all the children. They're gathering here today because I'm dying and it's time to divide the money. Phil Riken then comments on that. He says, whether rich or poor, this is how life always ends, with the dead leaving it all behind and the living dividing whatever is left. Yet the living are not always satisfied with the way things get divided. Luke 12, 13. This was true of the man who interrupted Jesus, wanting him to adjudicate a dispute over an inheritance. And Jesus uses this opportunity to address the sin of covetousness, greed. The analysis of the sin of covetousness is set forth here in this passage, and it warns us of the great danger. Let's first look at this request. Luke writes that someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus, as you've seen, has been teaching on various topics regarding Christian discipleship. He had been encouraging his disciples to fear God and not to fear any person, especially for being a follower of Jesus. He urged his disciples to acknowledge him before all other people and said that he will reward them by acknowledging them before God and before the angels in heaven. And then suddenly, as if this man has not been listening to a word that Jesus has said, which he probably wasn't, Right? When we've got something that is happening to us, something like this, there's some great upheaval in the family, right? We're involved in the midst of a conflict. Don't we find it difficult to think about anything else? These things consume us. How many times have you come into this place? And there's something going on in your life that is all-consuming, and you walk out and you haven't heard a thing. It's not a criticism. It's just a, a recognition of who we are as fallen human beings. That's what this person was probably going through. And so he interrupts. And he doesn't ask Notice how this is phrased. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. There's no question there. There's a command. It's pretty incredible impertinence. Right? Tell the Son of God and the Lord of glory what he should do. You ever tell God what he should do? I have. I have. Every now and then I catch myself, <laughs> and I have to repent. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes you can tell God what you think ought to be the outcome of your prayers. But boy, that ought to be followed up with, but Lord, your will, not mine. Well, 
None of this. He, this, this guy is just so consumed with this situation, he's not thinking about any of these things. He just wants Jesus to intervene, and he's very blunt about it. But then Jesus answers, and notice the answer, verse 14. Jesus doesn't like the impertinence of the man at all. He addresses him as man. That tells you something about Jesus' attitude toward this situation. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Apparently, as uh, William Barclay notes, it was not uncommon for people in Palestine to take their disputes to respected rabbis. But Jesus refused to be mixed up in anyone's dispute about money. Certainly not what Jesus was concerned about. Jesus understood that what this man was so concerned about was not really what was important. Why does he refuse to get involved? He refuses to get involved because his present calling is not to be a judge between brothers over an inheritance. It is to seek and to save the lost. One day he will be the ultimate judge. One day he will come to earth the second time to wrap up history and present the kingdom to his father, but judging disputes was not his calling in this moment at this time. Jesus was consistently clear about why he had come. He had come to seek and to save the lost. He did not come to judge personal disputes between people, but rather to challenge all people to consider ultimate spiritual eternal priorities. And that's where he turns this whole discussion. He issues a warning, and that warning applies to all people. Then he said to them, verse 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That word translated as covetousness is also translated greed. It's the same thing. It refers to a, a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions. Or to possess more things than other people have, all irrespective of need. And that desire applies to all people, rich and poor alike. The rich are tempted to want even more of what they already have, while the poor are tempted to want things that they do not have. It's all covetousness. It's all greed. It doesn't change because you... You have a spreadsheet that can tell you you have enough. For people who are afflicted by this sin, for people who are in bondage to their greed, to their materialism, there is never enough. And so the poor people can be covetous and the rich people can be covetous and it doesn't matter because it's an issue of the heart, not your bank account. The sin that Jesus identified in this passage is not wealth or possessions, but rather covetousness or greed. He is highlighting 
a violation of the Tenth Commandment, which states that you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. Scripture also warns against covetous in, in Ecclesiastes. In verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, we read that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. If you love these things, you can never get enough. The reason Jesus warned against covetousness and greed is because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That word abundance here in verse 15 in this sense means surplus. You have more than you need. It's still not going to stop you from coveting. Jesus is teaching that having more does not add anything to our lives. He wants us to be content with what we have rather than to have an inordinate desire for more because that desire will never be satisfied. The search for more never ends. T.W. Mason said, It is true that a certain minimum of material goods is necessary for life, but it is not true that greater abundance of goods means greater abundance of life. This is why scripture says, with food and clothing, we are to be content. It's a very minimal standard for contentment in scripture. Alexander McLaren put it this way, not what we possess, but what we are is the important matter. The real life of a man has little relation to what he possesses. Neither nobleness, nor peace, nor satisfaction has such dependence on property of any sort. Covetousness is folly because it grasps at worldly good under the false belief that thereby it will secure the true good of life. But when it has made its pile, it finds that it is no nearer peace of heart, rest, nobleness, or joy than before, and has probably lost much of both in the process of making it. The mad race after wealth, which is the sin of this luxurious, greedy, commercial age, is the consequence of a lie that life does consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, McLaren wrote in the 19th century. He was describing his age. Nothing new under the sun. If it is a lie that life does consist in the abundance of possessions, then what is the truth? The truth is true life is to know Jesus Christ and to live for him. The Bible says that Jesus is the life. The Bible says that true life is to know the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that to live is Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ in that way? Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Is he everything to you? 
Would you be content to struggle financially as long as you have Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just come out in a you know, didactic kind of instruction to people. He goes on and tells them a parable. Beginning with verse 16, he says, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this rich man is a farmer, obviously, but he represents all human beings who are seduced by all kinds of greed. Whether statesmen or craftsmen or peasants or lawyers or nurses or doctors or secretaries or professors or mechanics or students, whatever kind of person you may be, this is applicable to you. God had blessed this man, although this man did not recognize it. God had sent just the right amount of rain and sunshine and kept the pests off his farm. And so this farmer had a massive crop, so massive he had no place to put everything. He doesn't seem as if he was a man who cheated anyone or abused his employees. He was simply wonderfully successful. But he did not recognize his success to be God's provision, and therefore he fell into a false sense of security. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. His security is in his success. His security is in his crops, in his possessions. And so he says, I'm going to tear down my present barns, and I'm just going to build bigger ones. And there I can store everything I own, my grain, my goods. Sounds like a logical and prudent idea. The danger lies in what is missing. No thought of stewardship. No understanding that all that he has had been given to him and he has a responsibility to use it for the honor of the one who gave it. The problem with this man is that he was selfish and self-absorbed. All he could think about was himself. He had no thought for God, no thought for other people. He wasn't going to give away his abundance. He was going to store it up and keep it. Because that's where he saw his security. In fact... Of the 54 Greek words used to tell this parable, 18 of them are first-person words. I, me, my. The rich man went on and said, I will 
Say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Kent Hughes noted that this is the only place in the Bible where retirement is spoken of. And it's in the context of disapproval. Now, the Bible recognizes, of course, aging and slowing down. Retirement is not the issue. Retiring to a life of self-indulgence is the issue. That finds no favor with God. A retirement that lives for self is as unbiblical and immoral as any other stage of life in which we live for ourselves. I realize we have many retirees among us. You need to hear what Jesus is saying. The problem is not with retirement. It's, it's with retirement that is focused upon self. How often do we think that way? Even those of us who are not yet retired, right? We're looking forward to it. That day when we've put in our time, when our investments and our bank accounts are of such a level that we can think about stopping our work. And we think about what? Traveling? Golf? That's my problem. (laughs) And typically, this is a good good test for where our heart is. When we think about retirement, What do we think about? What comes into our minds? This man thought he had a storage problem. What he really had was a spiritual problem. He lived his life as if God didn't exist. His life revolved around himself. Perhaps he went to the synagogue. Perhaps he went to the temple. He may even have given financially some of his money, but his life, his priorities, his actions didn't reflect that he lived in a right relationship to God. God doesn't come into the picture, really. He very well could have done that which would give him the appearance of respectability in the community and in the world. But you get him alone. And you find a way to examine his heart. God doesn't come into the picture. It's a question we should all be asking, isn't it? Who are we living our lives for? Ourselves or God? Listen to what God says to the rich man, verse 20. You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? God called him a fool because he lived his life as if there were no God. 
The Psalms say that the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. And even if those words aren't explicitly articulated, if they don't come out of the mouth, the way we live may very well reveal that that's what we believe. This man thought he would live many more years, but he didn't take into consideration the sovereign purposes of God. That very night, God would call him to a meeting. The rich man made plans for this world, and he did not give consideration for the next. One commentator tells a story of a conversation between a, a very ambitious youth and an older man who had learned a few things. Said the young man, I will learn my trade. And then, asks the older man, I will set up in business. And then, I will make my fortune. And then, I suppose that I'll grow old and retire and live on my money. And then, I suppose that someday I will die. And then. And that's the question. In that whole dialogue, that's really the only question that really matters. Live your life. Every one of us will be faced with that question at the end. And so Jesus ends his parable with a very practical application. Verse 21, he says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? We are rich toward God when his glory is our highest goal. We are rich toward God when we desire to worship him in spirit and in truth. We are rich toward God when communion with him, fellowship with him, is our greatest satisfaction. We are rich toward God when his service is our deepest joy. We are rich toward God when we desire to give away what he has given to us for the building of his kingdom. We are rich toward God when we live utterly and completely for him. We can enlarge our savings. We can build huge accounts and hold it all. We can plan our retirement so we will have nothing to do but change positions in the sun. We can plan our menus for the twilight years so that nothing but the finest cuisine crosses our lips. We can laugh our way to the grave only to discover that at the end, we are fools. Or we can be rich toward God because we gave and we gave and we gave knowing that we cannot outgive him. Knowing that he keeps his promises. Knowing that he will provide every need that we have. So having analyzed the sin of covetousness as set forth in this passage, 
We ought to be rich toward God. Now, earlier, I told you about this scene from John Grisham's novel, The Testament, in which a dying billionaire dies unloved, but not alone. Greedy relatives gather around his bed, waiting for his final breath so that they would get their share of his massive inheritance. But that book has a surprise ending. After the old man dies, the family gathers to read his last will and testament, signed shortly before his death. And to their complete shock, the entire fortune is granted to an illegitimate daughter that none of them knew about. And it turns out that this unexpected heiress was a serving Christian missionary in Brazil. A lawyer is sent to find her so that she can sign the necessary paperwork, and when he finally tracks her down, she refuses to accept any part of the inheritance. And the lawyer is dumbfounded, of course, because from his perspective, life consists in the abundance of one's possessions. He doesn't know any better, doesn't know any different. Yet because of her faith in Christ, the missionary has a completely different set of priorities. You worship money, she tells the lawyer. You're part of a culture where everything is measured by money. It's a religion. But the missionary begins, be, belongs to a different religion, serves a different God. So in the end, she decides to put every last penny into a trust for the work of the gospel. Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sin of covetousness and for every other sin. Now Jesus is calling his people to be rich toward God. He is calling us to check our attitude toward wealth and possessions and to be generous with what he has given us because he has given those blessings to us so that we would be stewards of those things. He's calling upon us to be generous with what we have, open-handed. We've just come through Christmas. You'll remember in Dickens' Christmas Carol, one of the things that Scrooge uh, is described as, as being is grasping. Grasping. Holding tight not willing to let go of what you have, closed-handed rather than open-handed. Disciples of Jesus Christ are to be open-handed, recognizing that nothing we possess is ours. It has been given to us as something which God desires us to be stewards of. He's calling us to give and to give and to give. We would be fools not to give everything we are and everything we have to the one who has given everything that we have and made us everything that we are and who has promised to provide everything we need. Father, 
May we be the kind of disciples that we have just been talking about. May we, Father, be men and women who hold loosely to things, to stuff. May we understand that whatever you have given to us, you have given to us so that we might use it for your glory. Be glorified in us, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.